0: Informed Descent, brought to you by Firearm Training Associates.
1: Firearms Training Associates is is a lucky company because we have been able to draft in some of the best instructors in the world. We have special operations guys, we have guys from the US military, from foreign militaries that work for us. They provide a great deal of insight into self-defense, so we developed this so that our customers could come on the weekends and get the best training in the world. pride ourselves on our civilian training. It's our armed civilian that's one of the most important things to us. We wanna teach them how to survive dangerous situations. When you come through the course, as long as you're
2: performing at a acceptable level, you're gonna get a certificate that puts our stamp on it. And we take it serious when we put our stamp on there. When you get our gold label, that means that you've passed the class
1: that you've attended.
0: Firearm Training Associates, proud sponsor of Informed Descent.
2: Find out more at FTATV.com.
1: Informed Descent, the intersection of healthcare and politics with Dr. Jeff Barkey and Dr. Mark McDonald. Before we're done tonight, our audience is going to get a close-up view of what evil looks like, and you might actually be comfortable with it. Mark, great to be with you on another episode of Informed Descent. Hi, Jeff. We've got a wonderful guest tonight. Uh, I've just previewed uh, his movie that came out that was a movie made about his book, and that's Nefarious, and we're talking about Steve Dace. Steve, welcome back to Informed Descent*.
2: Hey guys, how are you? Thanks for having me, really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, great to be with you. And uh, so this movie's coming out, Nefarious, you wrote a book and now it's being made into a movie and it's, it's quite chilling and kind of reminiscent of what's going on in our country. So tell us a little bit about the movie.
2: Yeah, the movie serves kind of as a prequel uh, to my book, A Nefarious Plot, which I wrote back in 2016 as kind of a, a sequel homage to C.S. Lewis's classic, The Screwtape Letters. And I, I kind of decided, let's let's take what C.S. Lewis wrote about uh, in 1942, and, and let's up the ante here a little bit. Instead of talking about what goes on within the unseen realm, uh, when the forces of darkness try to uh, tempt us as individuals, how about the takedown of, a, of an entire culture? And in the book, a nefarious plot. This high lord of hell named Nefarious, who was uh, tasked by the devil, and and you learn in the book. You know, I, I kind of took some uh, creative license, a la uh, John Milton in uh, Paradise Lost, just to add you know what I thought would be creative subtext to the biblical text and narrative. Hopefully, I didn't go so far as to violate it, but I came up with the idea that uh, in hell, demons are named after um, how um, how Satan. Um, and how Satan views their most enviable trait, right? So, just so he has a new name, he was once Lucifer. He's now Satan. He has renamed the angels that fell from heaven with him, and he named them based off of what their most, most formidable trait is. And for Nefarious, that's his name. His name is Nefarious because that's his most formidable trait. Uh, and he was he was tasked by the enemy with destroying the United States of America. And in the book, he lays it all out. And does so so that our unwillingness to hear it and to turn away from it is how he will convince his master, the devil, that his plan has been successful now. Of course. And so when we went to adapt the book into a movie, you know, you can't do a movie where a demon just, you know, polemically, you know, yells at you and rants at you for, you know, 90 minutes to two hours. Right. Um, And so we wanted to figure out what's the MacGuffin to take the material in this book, particularly the character, and turn him into a feature film. And. Uh, We read my preface where I I, I wrote as a, this was a joke at the time, I have have no idea, um, I, I have no plans, I should say, to tell you how I came upon this demonic manuscript, how it came into my possession, but who knows? Maybe one day if we sell the movie rights to this thing, that's how we'll take this story and translate it to a movie. And then we thought, let's just do that. So the movie will tell you the story of the demonic manuscript. What is its origin? Where did it come from? And its origin begins on death row um, with an inmate by the name of Edward Wayne Brady, who on the day of his execution claims that he should not be executed because these murders that he committed were not by him, but by the demon that inhabits him. The court then appoints a psychiatrist to go and do an evaluation to make sure he's sane enough to uh, be executed that evening. And this atheist psychiatrist gets much more than he bargained for, and, and that's really where the movie truly gets going.
1: So Steve Dace, you're a conservative talk radio host on the Blaze Network. How did you go from that to being a movie mogul?
2: You know, um, a bunch of things I had absolutely nothing to do with, actually. I I wrote this book in 2016. Uh, At the time, I was on a pretty modest radio network that doesn't exist anymore. Our show was, you know, in, in its very early development stages. And I just didn't have a platform to drive wide book sales. And I think we sold like, four or 5,000 copies at the time, which is you know pretty nice number. And I thought I was gonna kind of move on to whatever the next chapter of my life was. And then uh, six months later, I got a phone call out of the blue from a guy I work with every day now, but I had never met him at the time, named Glenn Beck. And he called me out of the blue and said, hey man, you're, you know your book, a mutual friend gave me your book. I read it and it blew my mind. And I wanna have you on my show to talk about it. I'm like, I, I really don't think 10 million people need to hear about my book, Glenn but I guess I'll come on tomorrow nevertheless, okay?
1: Wow, that, that is something.
2: Yes, and uh, the uh, the, um, the guys at uh, Believe Entertainment who used to work at Pureflix, uh they were breaking out on their own to develop films now, not just uh, screenwrite them and produce them, but direct them and everything else. And they were getting ready to film uh, or start pre-production on Abby Johnson's memoir, Unplanned. That was gonna be their first feature film. And so they were also wondering what their next movie was going to be. They just happened to hear me talking to Glenn Beck about it that morning and went and got the book on Kindle and it blew them away. And they came to me with a, you know, say, hey, we want to buy the movie rights to your book. And at first I thought it was like a Nigerian Prince scam, but it turns out it was legit. And, you know, um, several years later and a lot of, a lot of difficulties and a lot of trials, we are finally here. We made it to the finish line and the movie is in theaters nationwide right now.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, Sean Patrick is really something special in that movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's Academy Award-level performance by Sean Patrick Flannery in that, in, the, in our film.
1: So we're broadcasting live on the Patreon network, so a shout-out to all of those who are with us and listening, and thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. Um, so, is the modern-day nefarious, and will he be using the same excuse when he's on death row at Anthony Fauci, that it wasn't
2: his fault that the devil inside him made him do this well now you're just teasing me okay the I mean I mean I mean I good news is it's late at night almost bedtime with the wife and talk of executing Anthony fauci after a fair trial of course after a fair trial of course of course uh, you know it's like that scene when Violet walks down the street of uh, Bedford Falls and it's a wonderful life wearing that dress. And uh, Bert, the cop, looks at Ernie, the cab driver, and says, I got to go home and see what the wife's doing, All right? You start talking about putting Anthony Fauci on trial, and that gets, my, uh, that gets my dander up for sure, yeah.
1: Yeah, no question. He lied to us and then admitted later he lied to us. And when you go back and listen to the things he said about how safe and effective and preventative uh, and, and this vaccine was, and now we realize it's not, uh, he, he played the American people for what motive is, um, is up for debate, but clearly uh, he was responsible for this debacle and this nefarious rollout of this vaccine. And not just that, this vaccine, you read the real Anthony Fauci and you learn about him doing the same thing during the AIDS epidemic back in the, whatever, whenever it was in 1990s. You bet. I'm not a fan of Anthony Fauci. I hope the Congress does a thorough investigation of him to show the American people Exactly what went on and what he did and what his responsibility was during this whole COVID tyranny situation.
2: Well, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think we need to go beyond Anthony Fauci. I think we need a. I mean, I, I, he is the the head of the snake, uh, but it's a hydra, and I think this requires a Nuremberg level of trial, Nuremberg level of investigation. I think these things ought, ought to all be broadcast online and accessible to everybody. I think. Um, I think. Great medical scientists who were um, who were scarlet lettered. I think of my friend Peter McCullough, maybe the greatest cardiologist this country's ever produced. Uh, Doctor Harvey Rich at Yale, who's the most one of the most academically cited MDs this country has ever produced. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford University, of course. Doctor Scott Atlas at Stanford University. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people don't still understand is how many people at elite academic institutions thought this was all bunk all along and tried to push back on it all along. I know there's this idea that COVID was kind of a a substitute for the global warming fight, you know, that science, the, the, the scientific consensus in the academies versus red state America. And that's just simply not true. I mean, from the very beginning, um, John Ioannidis at Stanford University doing the the Diamond Princess White Paper on the IFR and the CFR from the first domestic COVID outbreak and pointing out what what was... And if you go back and read that paper now from early March of 2020 and compare it to the data that we eventually saw through the pandemic, he called it right away. Uh, And so there, there were very respected academics who probably don't agree with people like me on a host of issues. Uh, even from places like um, Oxford, the number one rated university in the world, according to U.S. News and World Report, who were trying to push back on this from the very beginning. And they were ignored by the Trump administration at the time, even though many of us were trying to essentially save the Trump administration from itself. If you read Scott Atlas's book, which I wouldn't advise doing if you're thinking at all of self-harm, because it will convince you to follow through, okay? Um, I mean, I, I, I read it on an airplane ride. I had to stop because I wanted to jump out the window. All right, it's just you. Can, and he, he tries to be kind, but you can tell by reading the book he is he is quantifying for you how he tried to save the Trump administration, handed him a million lifelines, and they just simply wouldn't take advantage of it. And quote didn't want to rock the boat over and over again. And I think that's one of the reasons why. Um, that's one of the reasons why the new Republican Congress is aggressively investigating the origins of the virus But not a lot of the mitigation efforts because everybody's hands here are on the murder weapon. All right. And in in the old political environment, here's how this would have gone a generation ago. You go back to if we had had COVID, say in the 90s, what would have happened is each side would have been willing to aggressively investigate the part of the equation. that best fits its political narrative all right so right away democrats would have gone hard after big farmer hard after them they will have said hey this is what happens with unregulated corporations this is what happens when corporations have inst- have you know a regulatory capture this is what happens because of the um the indemnity that ronald reagan gave them uh, in 1986 and and that would have served our purposes to get to one part of the equation of truth here, and then the Republicans would have gone hard after Fauci, NIH, and the government and the role that they played in this, and said, "Hey, this is what happens with unaccountable big government. This is what happens with uh, you know um, the administrative state, the swamp, um, you know, um, never-ending bureaucracy." And that's and these things have to be held accountable, have to be punished, and we could have played as Americans. We're going to play both of these sides off of each other and come to some form of justice, people on each side would have been held accountable because it would have been within everybody's political best interest to hold one half of the equation accountable. And so we would have gotten something from each side. In the era in which we live now though, that old political duopoly doesn't exist anymore. What we have now is both sides, frankly, are corporately captured. And it's just a matter of which corporations here we're talking about. And so in in this case we have you know, Trump signed the checks for Operation Warp Speed, gave billions of dollars to Moderna that had never even brought—forget mRNA, any product to market ever. Yeah, millions of people. They'd never brought a single freaking product to market. He wrote all those checks. In fact, he brags about it to this day. He locked all these states now, and he even—he tra- dude, you can go back and find tweets where he said, "Hey, no, the governors aren't. Are, we're we're letting the governors call the shots, but really, I'm the one telling them to be locked down." And so, Republicans. Feel as if he still might be our nominee in the future. I don't want to, you know, be on the wrong side of this, and so they're not pursuing any of the mitigation stuff that went on. You go after Anthony Fauci, and I mean, he's going to show you receipts about how the Trump White House signed off on everything, and so they don't—they don't have a vested interest in doing that. And then Democrats aren't—I—I've I missed when Democrats hated corporations. Those were the days, guys. All right. Now, now Democrats are corporations are terrible unless they're biopharmaceutical fascists the fronts. And then they can on you know, their never ending human chattel experiment. OK, I mean, now you know, corporations are great unless it's pedo groomer woke Disney and they're the victim now. And so, you know, uh, there, we have no agency or any place to go to get justice here because neither side of the political aisle has it in their vested interest to provide it for us whatsoever because everybody's hands, almost everybody's hands with very limited exception, almost everybody's hands here are on the murder weapon. And so now it's double indemnity. Now they look at each other and say, I don't go after you, you don't go after me and let's just all move on. And that's why they're all, That when was the last time Congress voted unanimously on anything other than the sky is blue, okay? They just voted unanimously a week ago to, uh, to release all the files on the origins of the virus. Because everybody knows that's something that, we, that we're that not responsible for, except we kind of are, because I, I, I firmly believe it was our scientists who helped create that virus in those Chinese labs. Um, and they may have thought they were working on a preemptive vaccine and, and likely were you know useful idiots for the SHICOMs and a bioweapons program. But I, I'd be stunned if US, or at the very least, US funded interests don't have their fingerprints all over the creation of this virus.
1: No doubt, we're speaking with Steve Dace, a conservative talk radio host on the Blaze uh, network and um, uh, recent uh, release of a new movie called Nefarious, that's the prequel to a book of the similar name. I've, I've watched it, it's chilling, uh, it's evil, stared straight in the eye, and I think it's, it's reminiscent of what we all experienced during this last three, four years of the COVID pandemic. Mark, you've written on this and you've written about the fear that that came about as a result of COVID-19 and continues to um, riddle our nation. And when you see this movie, I mean, it's hard to watch this movie actually, because it is there's there's a threat of truth in it. Uh, There's a threat of modern day evil that we're all witnessing. Um, and it's it's not an easy movie to watch. Aren't we really
0: talking about this as a metaphor for what Steve just described as accountability? And this is, as you, I think, in my mind, the first time I've heard anyone say it with such clarity, you provided a description on a practical level in parallel with your film here in society of the obstacles to achieving accountability on a macro level, we achieve it in prisons by punishment, and in, in this case, execution. But how do you how do you ride the path towards accountability on a societal level when, as you would say, everyone's hands on the murder weapon? When the executioner, the prison guards, the uh, visitors, uh, the the prisoners themselves they're all part of the of the program there really isn't any motivation to find accountability. And the problem I have with this, Steve, other than the problems of a, in principle and, and, and on a moral level, is very pragmatic and very practical. I don't believe that society, and this, I'm speaking to, about this from a psychological point of view, I don't believe a society can move forward and recover and thus progress after a calamity unless there has been accountability for the evil done to it. Think about the Rwandan and Tutsi genocide. That's one of the most recent, I mean, recent in the last few decades, examples of how a horrific, evil-driven, um, mass uh, psychotic hatred killed millions of people, but that society has recovered uh, because they found a way to hold people accountable through the Reconciliation Commission. We haven't done anything like this for the reasons you just described. And if we don't, if we can't find a way to do this, I don't think that the evil on a social, societal level, can be expunged. That's my view.
2: Agree, brother, with every syllable of what you just said. Right on the money. And in fact, I would take it a step further. When we talk about everybody having their hands in the murder weapon, all of us do too. If you you know, we when we had our best selling book that we wrote about this earlier this year, Rise of the Forthright, confronting COVID fascism with a new Nuremberg trial so this never happens again. And when we described, when we talked about what happened, this is a unique circumstance. What, what happened here has literally never happened before in human history. Literally, every gov- almost every government in the world, regardless of form, function, um, nationality, cr- uh, custom, language, agreed overnight, like a Thanos snap, to, to beat their swords into plowshares, erase borders, and put unilaterally the same policies on all of their people. Without a shot fired, without a treaty signed, there's just there's no precedent for this in all of human history. And what did RFK Jr. say the other day uh, at Hillsdale? You 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 can't comply your way out of tyranny. And every, and we all, to some level, complied against complied with this. And if you look at what happened, uh, you, if you look at a couple of other examples of man, of, you know that are really well known in history of man's inhumanity to man. You look at the Civil War. And the, and the moral, the moral, uh, cause against slavery. There's a, there's a great scene in one of the, one of the two great miniseries they did in the eighties about the Civil War, the blue and the gray. And there's a great scene there where uh, a Union and Confederate soldier, um, get injured and left for dead at a key battle and they're left behind and they're the last two survivors. And so they got to figure out how to get along. And they, and the union guy pulls a gun on the Confederate and they can, the Confederate says, what are you doing? And the union guy, I'm an American. He says, Hey, no, you're not. You want to own human beings. It's like, man, I, I'm a poor sharecropper from Mississippi. I couldn't afford a slave if I wanted to. All right. I mean, I'm barely making ends meet. I didn't even want to come fight in this war. I got drafted. All right. Point being that while it was a, while it is our national sin historically, the amount of people, even in the South who could actually afford to actively and affirmatively take part in the practice really wasn't that many, okay? Now, I would argue from a Christian standpoint, everybody else who didn't do anything about it was passively guilty of it, okay? But that's different than actively participating in it. it doesn't It's not any less immoral, but it's not the same level of involvement and engagement either. So you look at Germany in the 1930s and 40s, very few people were actually going around rounding up their Jewish neighbors, Many of them didn't say anything about it when they did. Many of them kept their mouths shut. But the point being that those examples of national sins didn't penetrate down to every socioeconomic class of the people down to the most granular worker bee level of the hive. All right. Only certain sectors. In Germany, you had the military, you had the the fascist state, you had the biomedical, pharmaceutical state, the elites, the academic sector. They led the way. On, on the purges and the holocausts, um, and in this case, though, all of us did this to one another. All of us put a mask on our kids before we sent them to school. Many of, of us took a poison poke in order to, to to work a job. The
1: majority, Steve, not all.
2: Not yeah. That's why I said many of us. But yeah, but to some degree, all of us did something. All of us made some form of compromise, myself included. I would like, for example, go fly. I would not wear my mask all the way through the airport. I'd put it on to get on the plane because I knew I couldn't travel to where I had to go otherwise. On some degree, we all did something. There were plenty of guys with 42-inch pythons listening to Joe Rogan talking about, yeah, man, Civil War, brah. And then before they got to Costco, they got their little daughter, Misty, uh, out of the car and made sure she was wearing her mask before they went in. Okay? I mean to some degree we all complied with this on some level. And that goes to what you're talking about Mark that even if even if we could go back to another era where we where where each party's vested interests we could play off of them to our best interests do the people themselves want this kind of reckoning? How many people just are thinking I don't I don't want to find out. I I don't want to be stressed out that I go to get my wife pregnant and I'm the next guy whose sperm motility got crushed. Like I'm trying to get pregnant and I'm the next woman who has to get a hysterectomy at 35 because of what this did to my menstrual cycle and, and and my reproductive system. Hey, I'm 42 and I'm playing basketball with my buddies and I've been in great shape my whole life. And suddenly now I've my heart got suddenly bigger. It's myocarditis. It's, you know, I, mean, I, want, I don't even want to think about that. So you know what? Let's not think about it and let's just oh all boy. move on like it never happened. And I think that's the majority of the appetite that is out there.
0: The trauma of discovering the truth. That's what Jeffrey Tucker, uh, said to us, uh, on our last uh, recording a few weeks ago from Brownstone. Uh, and I think that's exactly correct. Uh, people don't want to know because everyone has been tainted to some degree, obviously some more than others, but there is no one whose hands are completely clean here. And it's hard for people, human beings psychologically to face the trauma of the truth when everyone is dirty. I, I think that's, that's a really important point, and I'm, I'm glad that you're making it. And I also noticed that, interestingly, the people who watch the movie are split, the audience loves it, the critics hate it, uh, which usually tells me it's a movie that we wanna see because movies that critics like, I, I generally dislike personally, but I think that also just reinforces what we've been talking about, that uh, the people who are in positions of authority culturally and people who are in the position to lead the way or to create the, uh, as critics often do, they try to frame movies as as exposés of the sins of society. They don't want anything to do with this. I really think that there is a turning against, uh, by most Americans, the truth because it is traumatic. And this is a big problem. And, and I don't see uh, an obvious solution to it. I think we're in a bind. So
1: we're, we're live on the Patreon network and I don't know if they have FTC rules about language, but what I hear you saying, Steve, is we're
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a technical term, doctor, but yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, Mark, you mentioned the ratings for Nefarious. We went and looked at the last 20 years of, of data at Rotten Tomatoes this morning, and we could find no other film that had the wide chasm that currently exists with my film, Nefarious, between the audience score and the critic score. Now, now faith-based films always have this chasm, no matter how good they are. All right. It doesn't matter if they're as good as Passion of the Christ or as cheesy as Family Camp. All right, they they all have this chasm, okay, just because of their disdain for anything religious. But our film is setting. We couldn't find anything in twenty years that had a sixty-seven point difference between what the audience says, which is ninety-seven percent, and what the critics are saying, which is thirty percent. And that goes to your point, though, too, Jeffrey. How do we share a country like this? I mean, if if you go again back to the Civil War, if you take slavery off the table, granted, that's a hell of a thing to take off the table. That's a little bit like saying, hey, you know, take the part where my husband beats me and the rest of the marriage is great. Okay, so that's a hell of a thing to take off the table. But for the sake of this argument, though, just go with me for a second. Let's pretend slavery never happened. The value system, slavery aside between people who lived in the north part of the country and the south part of the country wasn't any different. The only real difference was the north was the hub of the industrial revolution. It was more urbanized and the south was still largely an aristocratic agrarian uh, counterculture. They spoke the same language, believed in the same, you know, governed by the same laws, same constitution. One side just said we should actually really apply it to all human beings. The other side didn't. But that issue aside, there weren't a bunch of irreconcilable differences between the two after that. I would argue we'd have to set like seven issues aside right now to say that where we're at. I mean, these are and the thing, too, is it's not regions of the country. Like you could go to some places, even in California, and you're going to think you're it's Red Dawn. All right. But the rest of the state is California. So yeah, that's
1: your that's here in Orange County, Steve.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it. it but that's the other thing, too, is the Balkanization, we're beyond polarization now. We're talking Balkanization, like Yugoslavia stuff, you know, and it's not, it's not, that's the, that's the, 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 the Muslim territory. And that's the Serbian territory. It's literally like blocks of streets, counties in the same town. You know, if I, if you go, if I, the people who live on the north side of Chicago think a lot different than the people who think on the south side of Chicago, the people who live in the suburbs think a, you know, think a hell of a lot differently than either one of those two groups. And they're all in the same DMA. So how do, we, how, how do you share a country with irreconcilable differences on fundamental values? We are, we are literally in an era where the most perplexing country question that you can ask a public official is, what's a woman, for goodness sakes? Okay, and I, I don't know how you overcome that. And so on my show, we put it this way, revival or bust. I mean, if we don't have a moral and spiritual revival, like the old fashioned great awakenings that bind the people into, a, a, even if even it doesn't have to be a unified, we're always gonna have political differences, but in a unified ethic, a unified ethos. If we don't have that again, man, I, I just don't see how this ends well in the long run. And that that, that frightens me.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. And I, and I, I agree with you on this. You know, there's a lot of talk, before Donald Trump became president, and now there's talk about maybe he'll get reelected. Too many people look to Washington, D.C. for a savior, somebody who's going to fix it from the top down. And Mark and I have talked about this extensively. That ain't gonna happen no matter who gets elected. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, or whoever it is, this has to be fixed from the bottom up, not from the top down. There needs to be a moral and spiritual revival in this country. And some of the pastors are leading that, some aren't, but that's where it needs to start—not from the top, but from the
2: bottom. Amen. You know, one of the things that I've I found fascinating, you know, with over 15 years of experience now in political activism, is the two major political parties, their ecosystems, and their methodologies are the exact opposite of their ide- of their claimed ideologies. I mean, Dem- Democrats are the party of consolidation, centralization. But if you look at the inner workings of the Democratic Party, the state and local parties wield a lot of power. The National Democratic Party almost can't even get funding, doesn't wield really any part. It's decentralized. On the other hand, the Republican Party who talks about local control and subsidiarity, um, the state and local parties around the country where that is concerned are glorified rotary clubs, people arguing over you know, who's going to bring what dish to the potluck and who's the speaker. And it's the national party that wields uh, almost unchallengeable levels of power uh, throughout the rest of uh, the rubric, and and so, <laughs> you know, trying to figure this out when each political party governs itself differently than it wants to govern you, it's. I agree the, 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 there are no political solutions, as the police once sang. Washington at this point is District One from the Hunger Games, and. I think the, the most important thing that could, that we can do, and I think revival is up to God and not to us, and so I, I think what we can do in the interim is you have to make your red states and red communities every bit as red as the blue states and blue communities are, almost like a self-sorting. One, one of the things you see in Texas, for example, is because they don't enforce a cultural level of conservatism, a whole bunch of Google uh, uh, employees are fine moving there to vote for Beto O'Rourke and enjoy lower taxes while being Marxists. In Florida, what's happening, because the g- Republican governor there, Ron DeSantis, does enforce cultural conservatism. Those people are moving out. They don't wanna live there. They're li- they're, you know, there are all kinds of stories every day about, oh, I can't pedo-groom the kids in the school, so I'm gonna move somewhere else. That's the point, get the hell out of here. Yeah, we'll replace you with somebody else. We, we need that kind of a self-sorting, I think, And, and, you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned this before when Donald Trump took office in January of 2017, there were more, there were, there were the fewest Democrats nationwide in public office than there had been since before the great depression, before the new deal and the FDR coalition, that was a century ago. And yet if you were a Democrat on the city council or county council, whatever you call it there in San Francisco and Alameda County, did you get up that morning and say, ah, snap, Republicans have total control in Washington. I guess we're going to stop subsidizing free drugs and hotel rooms for uh, tranny homeless people. No, you didn't give a you didn't give a flying f. You just you you got up the next morning and you San Francisco would on. It, it didn't matter who the hell was the president. You kept doing your thing. So here's my question: Why don't West Virginia, Mississippi, Alabama, see what I'm saying? Wyoming, dude. In Wyoming, if you see a Democrat on the street, you call nine one one because you don't know who that is. All right. There's, literally like five democrats in the entire wyoming state legislature something like that why don't our states act the way that they act meaning that yes in some respects they can do things like biden's mandate you got to fight him in federal court fine but on it we weren't meant to have a system where literally the your level of freedom was determined each individual election by who said at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue, and what handful of judges they nominated while they were in office.
1: No, I, I know, Steve, but listen, that's not the way we traditionally roll as conservatives. We want to just be—we want to be left the hell alone to do our own thing. You do your thing, we'll do our thing, and we don't really actually care what you do as long as you leave us alone. But what's happened now is they haven't left
2: us alone, and they're not going to. That's why. That's why there won't be a formal national divorce. I, I think we can do a self-sorting, like what I'm describing. I think we can do that. But a formal national divorce. They, these are Jehovah's Witnesses with tanks. All right. The Jehovah Witness doesn't knock on your door on the most beautiful Saturday afternoon every summer on accident. They know you're home, brah. That's they've they've been waiting. They can't they can't wait to ask you. Are you one of the 144,000? Then you you can ask them questions like, well. If only 144,000 are saved, and there's four and a half million of you, shouldn't you guys settle the argument amongst yourselves before you start bugging the hell out of me? But that's another story, all right. But the, but the point is, they they they're looking to they're they're here to change you on purpose. They're on mission, and the, the so so is the spirit of the age. They won't let you go. You need to be changed. Um, it, your kids need they're in the enlightenment that only they can provide. They are the people we've been waiting for. We just don't know it yet. And you know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Um, and you'll learn one way or the other that tolerance hurts, bro.
1: Well, you see more and more people fighting back and pushing back, I think. When you look at, for example, education across the country, there's been the largest abandonment of government education than we've ever seen. There's been a tremendous growth, the largest we've seen in a decade in homeschooling. So conservatives are making decisions based on being harassed and told what to do and and being forced to change and they're changing by removing themselves from the system and creating a parallel system. We're seeing that in medicine too, where a parallel system of medicine is being created. A freedom Healthcare system, so patients ultimately have a choice, and I think we're, we are we are self segregating, and I think for the better.
2: You're right, and I've seen that trend, and I applaud it. Man, I just hope it's not ten or fifteen years too late. But I do know I do know this: it will be ten or fifteen years too late if we don't start if we don't keep doing it today. So I'm all for it. Well, listen,
1: I heard Elon Musk interviewed recently by Tucker, and. Uh, if things keep going the AI route, it's not going to matter anyways because the machines will be taken over.
2: I I I, listen, I love what Elon Musk has done with Twitter. I I love how he is just destroying whatever is left of the corp, of corporate media's hegemony that Trump did not crush. He is he's coming in off the top rope to finish it off, and I love that. But I have to tell you, I'm I am much more afraid of creating a, 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 a chat AI to find ultimate truth and unlock the secrets of the universe, I am much more afraid of that than I am creating the other, the current chat GPT that we have, which is basically MSNBC embodied as an algorithm. A, that's a clown show. Everybody knows it's a clown show. All right, the fetishists who get off on that, they're all, they're, that's political masturbation. They, they're, they're getting off on it. It's a feedback loop, right? It's, it's a circle jerk. And, and if you're not a part of it, it's easy to deconstruct. But, but here's the thing about the, these algorithms. They don't, they're not osmosis. They don't just grow. They don't just fall out of the sky. These things have codes. They have programs, which means they have coders, programmers. And all, all, all in, every algorithm operates at the basis, at the base assumption of who created it and programmed it. So how would a, how would an algorithm know? What are the, what are the characteristics of ultimate truth? Where would it get those things from? have to get them from a human being. Yikes. We just, you know, we we just spent a half an hour here talking about what believing that there's a class of people better than us, more special than us, smarter than us, what that wrought for the last three years, okay? And um, I'm not interested in replacing, uh, um, you know, very hard left know-it-all technocrats with another ideological form of technocrats, even if it's one whose ideology I may happen to share more elements of. I, I hate technocrats just as a general rule, right? Um, and and um, I think that's a terrible idea. I, I think that's the kind of stuff where now, it's not just a, 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 a whacked out political movement that looks cultish and, and behaves cultish, but the stuff he's talking about is how actual cults get formed. Mark,
1: help us us understand this, because there's a lot of cult-like behavior going on in this
0: country, and what are we to make of it all? Getting back to what Steve brought up and I amplified earlier, I, I think that there's a motivation to stay in the cult and to grow the cult, because to leave the cult exposes you to reality, and the reality is really ugly, and people in general are more motivated by the avoidance of pain than they are of the pursuit of pleasure.
2: Amen. And there's
0: a lot of pain out there just waiting to be exposed.
2: <laughs> can, I, can, can I step in for just one second? Mark, yes. On what you just said? I, I, I did an interview recently where the host asked me, was I shocked that this many Americans automatically complied with all this the last few years? And my answer was no. I told him no, but here is what did shock me. That I thought that our love of our decadence the love of our pleasure. Most most Americans now define being American not by our constitution, our freedoms, our liberties, self-governing, no. By the spoils that we that this country provides, the decadence it provides, the comfort and coziness it provides. And so I thought that, you know, take people's take all those things away from people and tell them and you can just watch Tiger King on Netflix for 6 months. I thought that, I thought there's no way our people that, that our countrymen are going to say no bars, you mean no no, no hookups, uh, no movies, no parties, and that's what stunned me. Is they said I, and now to me, if you're at a point now that I can't even bribe you with pleasure, then the compliance is complete and that goes to exactly what you were just describing that we are more and i learned that that's what i learned during covid we really are truly driven more by an avoidance of pain than the pursuit of pleasure that's well said
1: now come on steve tiger king happens to be a good show and we were all disappointed that uh, donald trump (laughs) did not pardon joe exotic all right
2: I'm sorry, Mark. Finish your point. Go ahead. I didn't interrupt. No, that
0: was that was actually the point I was going to make. You you interrupted me at the end of my point, so it was good timing. <laughs>
1: yeah. So it's it's crazy times, and um, as uh, Beth pointed out, it's, I'm not sure whether we're in a Marvel comic or actually in the Matrix. It's one of the two. I'm not
2: sure. Oh, we're definitely in the Matrix, and most Americans are Joe Pantoloni's character in the first one.
1: Uh-huh. They
2: they tried to break free from a while for a while, man. It's just too hard. So even though I know it's fake, plug me back in and give me that uh, algorithm uh, steak to eat because a fake steak is better than fighting. You giving me a fake steak is better than fighting uh, for my chance at a real one. How's this
1: going to play out, Steve? Are we just turning into a socialistic country, just one of many in the world? Well, we
2: are fully now, and and this has already happened in Western Europe. Uh, If you look at Western Europe, um, you're talking about a part of the world now um, that was really the haven of... Judeo-Christian civilization, or what we used to call Christendom, the old Catholic cathedrals are mostly mosques or empty or shopping malls now. Uh, countries like France, only two percent of the whole population is evangelical. Two percent. All right, there are there are there are fewer evangelicals in France than there are uh, people who identify as LGBTQ plus plus fu whatever the hell it is now uh, here in the United States. All right, and so. That trend line is happening here. Uh, there was a very ominous poll that the Wall Street Journal did that found, since 1998, the only fundamental value among Americans that has increased is the pursuit of money. Even among Republicans, only one third of Republicans thought it was important to have children. All right, and so you know we are we're self-immolating here, slowly but surely, right now, um, and, uh, it, and 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 you you are watching. Yeah. Uh, the end of, of our Judeo-Christian civilization, which is why I said it's revival or bust. And so, what will come next? Well, if we're in a post-Christian era, then we'll go back to what things looked like before we were in a Christian era. You'll, it'll, that that's you know the new the progressives aren't progressives; they're regressives. They're trying to take us back to a pre-Judeo-Christian understanding of the world. Um, it's just rehashed paganism, but it's, te- it's technocratic paganism. It's paganism with modern uh, technology, uh, but it's the same kind of beliefs. The old gods, worship of the earth, um, naturalism, all that kind of stuff is all making uh, a return. There's nothing new under the sun, just new people under the sun who have yet to hear or see it yet. Are we watching end times? I think that's possible. I do. I I, I think the minimum the minimum stakes we are playing for, because we also have to remember... You may be seeing Christianity die in the West. It's flourishing in, in Africa, the southern the, the southern hemisphere. Sorry, it is it is flourishing there. Africa, I, I mentioned that already. Um, so there is a bigger world out there than just us. I would say, though, this is the first time, and COVID showed that that a, a, a movement of global um, compliance and obligation and enforcement. This is the first time in human history that this is actually. Doable because of our technology and how we all congregate on social media now. To me, the lowest stakes we're playing for the minimum, the minimum
1: stakes. W- will it happen again soon? Was just just the 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 first act, and we're going to see it again.
2: Yeah, but I'm not sure it'll be something health related. Uh, it could very well be, uh, you know, what uh, gun violence, um, global warming, global warming, public menace, uh, gun violence is. Uh, it'll be, it'll, you know, it'll be something like uh, your car, uh, and so. Uh, here's your, really, we're talking about the West, basically the only difference between China and the West on the trajectory that we're on will be, is your social credit score in Mandarin or English? That, that's that's. That's the trajectory that we're on right now, is, is which language do you prefer? And so, hey, you know what, here's your electric car, goes 300, 400 miles a day. You know, we don't like what you posted last night, so you can't charge up for 24 hours. Um, here's your digital currency. You know, we don't. you were rude to somebody at the pizza joint last night, and so, you know, we deducted like a demerit, $25 out of your account, that kind of stuff. That, absolutely, that is what they have planned, and that is what they will do if we don't learn peaceable aggression, meaning civil disobedience, non-compliant, um, but peaceable, but aggressive Aggressive use of the word no. I dare you to impose that on me. And here's my camera, and I'm rolling tape for the whole world to watch you do this to me. We need to learn to do that. Anything short of that, uh, without revival, that is where this goes. It's just a matter of what what timetable we're looking at.
1: World War III, is it is it inevitable?
2: It could be. I mean, I think that Largely, the right now, if you look at what's going on in Ukraine, basically, you have two, there aren't, it, it, this isn't Axis and Allies, it's two axes. It, it's basically the Soros um, uh, World Economic Forum, they want to be the Axis, versus China, Russia, um, Iran, um, they want to be their own Axis. Basically, it's A-holes versus A-holes, okay? And, I mean, there's 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 no winning team there. Okay, there's there's not enough green shirts to put lipstick on the Zelensky pig. He's a corrupt. He's a corruptocrat. But that doesn't mean Vladimir Putin's a good person. He's an absolute fiend. So, um, you know, uh, but why are we so invested there? Well, because Ukraine has been a primary money laundering, grifting, uh, you know, operation for the Western elites in places like Davos and uh, the World Economic Forum. And that that's why.
1: Well, thanks for the good news, Steve. It's been a delight uh, talking to you this evening. And uh, the good news is I've got a full bottle of whiskey waiting for me, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewatch uh, *Nefarious* and try not to kill
2: myself. Well, that's good. Buy more ammo. I, mean, I don't I mean, I only answered the questions you guys gave me, man. So you guys <laughs> asked me a favorite ice cream. What I think? Do I think chocolate chip cookie dough is a food group? I do, by the way. You know, so I only answered the questions you guys gave. Me.
1: Are you real, Steve, or are you AI um, manufactured? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we're talking to Steve Dace, conservative talk radio host on the Blaze Network and uh, producer. And uh, I guess you you wrote it as well, Nefarious, the movie that was just released. I wrote uh, the book
2: know? it was based on, but the yes. Book,
1: yeah. And I encourage everybody to see it. It's a incredibly telling movie of our times and uh, what, what may come in the future. Uh, we're also broadcasting on the Patreon network and we are proud to be part of that network now, and we thank the folks that are on uh, listening live. Mark, any final thoughts? Uplift us or something, because uh, um, I've got a whiskey bottle and, uh, and a box of ammo waiting for And he's me. not
2: afraid to use that whiskey bottle, Mark. <laughs> no. Then we're really fucked.
1: <laughs> 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 Listen, Steve, it's been great having you back on Informed yes. Descent. And uh, best of luck, Godspeed on the movie. I, I hope it, uh, I hope it's a blockbuster and we see you winning an Academy Award. Thank you.
2: That'll happen on Earth 12. <laughs> <laughs> it, guys.
1: You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.